got this on here. I think I got it on. You good? You hear me? Okay. This morning we are going to be in Psalm chapter 110. If you want to go ahead and open up there. <coughs> now this psalm is, is pretty weighty. Uh, there's a, a whole lot here. And some of it we're going to spend a lot of time in, and some of it we're going to have to fly through um, so that we're not here for more, uh, more than an hour. I hopefully won't go that long even. Uh, <clears throat> this is a psalm that is written by David, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But as you, as you get there, if you would, bow with me in prayer and ask that the Spirit would speak to us today. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much for being a God who loved us. Father, so much that you sent Jesus to us to live amongst us and to die for us and to vanquish death on our behalf. Thank you so much for your spirit that gives us truth and and illumines our minds and helps us to understand. And so I pray today, Lord, that your spirit would move in this place and that he would speak through your word before us today. And Lord, that we would listen and we would be changed by it. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, verse 1 actually begins with what we would consider the title, and it says, A Psalm of David. A lot of times, uh, I know we've, going through the Psalms, uh, this is easy to overlook, but it is part of the scripture. It is just written right in there in the Hebrew. There's no distinction uh, that the Hebrews would have seen. And so, it is something we do need to talk about, and it will inform the rest of the passage that we read today. And so it, it is written by David. Not only does Psalm 110 tell us this, but we also have some other evidence of this. And this is in Matthew 22. Uh, it's actually where, I think we have it up here on the slide. I might have jumped over one. But Matthew 22, verses 41 through 44, Jesus actually asks a question of the Pharisees. And he says to them, what do you think about the Christ, or the Messiah? He says, whose son is he? And they responded, the son of David. So Jesus said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. As we see here in verse 1, right after the title, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so we see Jesus quotes Psalm 110 right here in Matthew's gospel. And he he even says, why then does David say? And so he's assuming, along with the Pharisees, because no one questions Jesus on the authorship of this psalm. Jesus says it's David's psalm, and everybody goes right along with it. And what we see happening is when he says this, He says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Is the question he then asks. And everybody's speechless. No one knows how to respond. Because they're like, obviously David wrote this, and he's saying to his Lord, sit at my right hand of of the Father, of, of Yahweh. And so nobody's able to respond. And from that point on, we see that no one dares to ask Jesus any more questions. And so... Jesus pretty much handedly, single-handedly uh, destroys any competition he has uh, logically as to being the Messiah, the Christ, right here in Matthew 22. And he uses this psalm, Psalm 110, to do it. 
And what we see that the Pharisees, really, if it wasn't David that wrote this, if that wasn't the understood uh, author of this psalm, it would have been very easy for them to say, well, actually, Jesus, we, we know that that wasn't written by David. And if they'd have done that, they could have um, pretty, pretty easily undermined his argument that if David wrote this about his Lord, then you should be treating the Messiah as someone more than just a human. What we see is that Jesus is telling them, you know, the Pharisees are expecting a son of David to come and to liberate them to be the Messiah. But they're thinking in very human terms. And so Jesus here in Matthew 22, and, and obviously that's not the passage we're, we're studying today, but what we see Jesus doing is telling the Pharisees that you've misunderstood who the Messiah is going to be, who he's supposed to be. And so that's here in Psalm 110, we see David getting a glimpse of who this Messiah is going to be. It's not uh, a lot of scholars, there's several scholars out there that would say that really this, this psalm wasn't written by David because how could David have known about Jesus? How could he have known about what Jesus would have been like? And so they, they choose to, to try and change the context and say, well, actually, this is about David, not written by David, but written about David and his enthronement on the throne of Israel. And so they, they choose to read it as, God says to my Lord David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But that is, is reading into what this actually says. And as we see, if we want to believe what Jesus tells us in Matthew's gospel, David is the author. And so this, uh, through this passage of scripture, we're going to see, first of all, uh, that David is looking forward to a better king in the Messiah, in this Christ that is to come. Also, he's looking forward to a better priest that is to come, better than the Levitical priesthood. And as we'll see, it will be one after the order of Melchizedek. We'll kind of talk about what that means here in a bit. And so, verse 1 there tells us, the Lord says to my Lord, and that's how, I'm reading from the ESV, that's the way it translates it for us. And that first Lord, uh, if you'll notice, probably every translation out there has it all in caps, L-O-R-D in all caps. And that's distinguished from the second Lord, which only has the L capitalized. And the reason for this, the way the translators have chosen to distinguish, uh, because in Israelite culture, you know, they didn't speak the name of God, which is Yahweh, because it was too sacred. They would, they would uh, place in, its, in that place, they would say Adonai, which means Lord or Master, out of reverence for God's name. And so... English translations have taken that up, and so rather than saying the name of Yahweh in Scripture, we just put Lord. But it is important to understand that there is a distinction between those two. It's, this is two different people that David is talking about. He's saying, Yahweh speaks to my master. And so we, we know, first of all, he's talking about God the Father, and then he's talking about this, some other person that is his master. And so this psalm is really a prophetic psalm. It's almost as if David is getting a glimpse into heaven. That um, David, as king, at times in Israel's history, he, he acts as a priest. He does some priestly things. And here, I think he is acting as a prophet. That he sees into heaven and sees into the future what is going to happen with the coming Messiah. So, obviously, as we can probably assume, when he says, my master, he's talking about somebody that's better than him. Obviously, if, if you're a master over someone, you are better. You are uh, higher. You have more authority. And so we see David acknowledging this. And we see him uh, telling us that 
Yahweh says something. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the Lord, Adonai, is told to remain until Yahweh accomplishes the task. And as we'll see in, in Ephesians 1.20, this is fulfilled in Jesus. It says that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So we see that as the New Testament is going to tell us, this master that David is speaking of is Jesus. And so this instruction to sit, that the master or Jesus is told to sit until I make your enemies your footstool, this is taken up in the, in the New Testament and is quite pivotal in our doctrine of who Jesus is in his exalted state. What we see, first of all, is that as he sits down, that represents he's in a relaxed state. He is no longer working this, uh, this sacrifice that he gave. He no longer has to offer this. Unlike the Levitical priests who daily would stand and give sacrifices to God, Jesus offered once and sits, and so it's finished. It's complete. Second of all, this idea of sitting is also used to describe Jesus' place of primacy in the heavenly realm. In Hebrews 1, 3, and 4, tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As we see that Jesus is better than any angel out there, he's better than any other heavenly being, he's better than any human including David. So we begin to see here that David is, is catching on to something that Israel is, is only beginning to hope for. You know, that they, they are hoping for the Messiah, for that heir on David's throne. We see in the exile and post-exilic periods, and even into the New Testament, we see these people yearning for a new king, a king that was better than David. And we see David here, here catching on to this, what it's going to be like. He says, that he's going to sit down and complete this, and it's not going to have to keep happening. And as we know, this is fulfilled in Jesus. But for the people of Israel at this time, in David's time, what we see happening is David's trying to instruct them, perhaps even unknowingly, in, uh, urged through the Holy Spirit, that David is not the be-all, end-all. He's not the savior of the world. He's just a king. He's just a man. Even though he is called the man after God's own heart, and he is a, a great king, a pivotal king in Israelite history, he is not the savior of the world. And so David here is trying to teach that through this song. Third of all, about the sitting down, David is also prophetically telling us where Jesus is now, in our time. He is currently seated at the right hand of God, indicating that death could not hold him. He's not in the ground, he is not rotting away, but he is living. He has broken the barrier, and he sits triumphant in heaven. In Colossians 3, we see uh, Paul begin to draw this out in verses 1 and 2. He tells us, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And he tells them, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so, 
Not only is it about who Jesus is as being prim- primary in the heavenly realm, but also it's about that we don't have a, a God or a, a Messiah or a Christ that still lives on this earth. We have one that is in heaven, meaning that he has conquered death. Now this last section of verse 1 is a conditional statement. It says, until I make your enemies your footstool. So Yahweh says, do this thing, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 27, we, we see this is beginning to look forward to uh, what we see in Revelation. What we see John writing about in Revelation. He says, then comes the end, when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that God, the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection under Jesus. As we see that this crippling blow has been delivered to Satan and to death in, in the cross and the resurrection. But we know that evil still exists. We know that we are not perfect, and death and Satan, Satan still writhe. And so we find ourselves here in this time in the midst of tension. We know that Christ is triumphant, but the war is not over. And so the place that we are in, the, the thing that we are called to is to hope and to yearn for Christ's return. Just as David here and the nation of Israel hoped and sought for the coming of the Messiah, we too look forward to the great anticipation of the day when Christ returns and he makes everything new. In in Revelation 21.5, great word from the Lord to John, he says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And so for you and I today to know that that David, way back here in 1000 B.C., writing about this, yearning for the coming of the Messiah, you and I can feel that with him. You know, we have more knowledge of, of who that Messiah is. We know it's Jesus. We know what he's done. But you and I still live in this time when things aren't made perfect yet. And so we look forward and we yearn and we work for that time when Jesus will come back and all will be made new. And so then in verse 2, we begin to see this kind of flesh out even more. We begin to see what's going to happen in the end. That when the enemies are made the footstool of Jesus. Verse 2 there says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now again, this Lord is Yahweh. It says the Yahweh sends forth from Zion. So we see that Yahweh is doing the action. He's sending forth the scepter, but yet we see then Jesus is told to rule in the midst of your enemies. And so there's this very, very intimate partnership between the Father and Jesus, that the Father is doing the work, and he's the one that's ruling, with the, sending forth the scepter, and Jesus is the one that is ruling by means of that scepter. You know, the, the idea of a scepter being not the instrument of or not a weapon, but the instrument of power. You know, we would think of a sword as being the weapon of destruction, whereas a scepter would be the representation of that power. In verse 3, 
This continues and says uh, that your people, Jesus' people, will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, when it says your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments, I think it's pretty easy to see uh, the time of revelation, you know, when, when the church of God comes forth and, and joins Jesus for the final battle, uh, arrayed in holiness. And so we see this clothing in holy garments is, is David is seeing the end. He's recognizing this is not time right now. This is not something that David can fully understand. And we, there in Revelation, see this beginning to flesh out. In Revelation nineteen fourteen. it says, The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Jesus on white horses. And so, David here is looking forward to this time when the day of power will come, Jesus will return, the church of God will join him, and uh, as we'll see in verses 5, 6, and 7, judgment will come. Now, the second half of verse 3, when it says, From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This is, uh, if, you're, if you're reading from the ESV, I know it has a footnote there, and it says, the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain, which is a nice, polite way for the, the editors and the translator to say, we don't really know what it means. And so, for us today, there, there's all kinds of conjecture that could be made of what this actually means. Uh, but one, one thing is, we, we don't know for sure what it means. So, something that... Uh, I read that seemed kind of like it could be right, could be a, a decent interpretation, is that Jesus is from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours, is that he will always have the freshness and the vitality as, if, as the dew always has every morning. Um, another option that was put forth is that the youth, the young people will come and flock to you in as many as the droplets of the dew are in the morning. Now, again, we don't know what it means, and so you can take that for what it's worth, but know that this is Scripture, and know that the mystery, uh, unfortunately, hasn't been revealed to us fully. Now, transition into verse 4. This is kind of the pivoting point of the the chapter. Uh, Again, Yahweh speaks to Jesus, another prophetic word, as it were, and he says that he is sworn, and he will not change his mind. You know, we see the firmness and the solidity of our our God's uh, decisions. He says there, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is what he speaks of Jesus. Now, if you would recall, Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis, and it's in Genesis 14. Uh, After Abraham has, has fought some battles, and he's meeting with the king of Sodom, kind of to discuss terms, It says that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, giving us a little information about him. And it says that Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth, or a tithe, of everything. This is... The only mention of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, uh, other than a passing reference here or there, until we get to Hebrews chapter 7. And the author of Hebrews blows it wide open and gives us 
really about a chapter and a half of explanation of why the order of Melchizedek is much better than the Levitical priesthood and why Jesus is in this order of Melchizedek. And so other than Genesis and here in Psalm 110, we don't really know a whole lot about him. And we've come to Hebrews 7, and the author says, you know that verse in Psalm 110 where it says, Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, knowing what we know in the New Testament time? It says, because of that, this is who he is. And being in this order of Melchizedek, first of all, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. In Hebrews 7, we see that, and also he was the king of Salem, or Jerusalem, And Salem is a form of the word shalom, meaning peace. So Melchizedek was the king of righteousness and the king of peace, which sounds a lot like our Messiah, Jesus being the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And also, no genealogy is given of Melchizedek in Genesis. And as soon as he is given a tenth, we don't know anything else about him. And so the author of Hebrews kind of interprets this and says, The meaning of that, the reason it was written like that, is to give this idea that Melchizedek had no beginning and no end. Because he comes on the scene and he leaves as quickly as he came. And so in the same way, we see that Jesus, being in that order, has no beginning and no end. Also, we see that Melchizedek is higher than Abraham. Abraham gives a tithe, a tenth of everything he has to Melchizedek. He recognizes that he is lower than this, this priest of the, uh, the God Most High. And we also see that Melchizedek is not only a priest, but he's also a king. And we see that in Israel, these are always separate. You know, David, the Davidic line, held the kingdom, whereas the Le- Levitical line held the priesthood. And they were always separate. But there was always this yearning for them to come together. And so we see that Melchizedek is both priest of God Most High and king of peace. And so Jesus, in the same way, is our better high priest, as we read in Hebrews, and he is also our king of peace. So Jesus is not like the Levitical priests, but he is a much better, uh, he, he belongs to an older, more perfect order, this order of Melchizedek. And so, flip my page here. His priesthood, Jesus' priesthood, will be unending. And this signifies that a perfect priesthood, unhindered by human sin or one in need of constant sacrifice. This goes back again to the idea that Jesus has sat down and has completed his work. And so this everlasting priest, Jesus, is the only one who can offer uh, everlasting salvation. You know, the, the priests of the Levite order had to offer lambs and offer doves and offer these sacrifices again and again for redemption. We see that Jesus is perfect. He needs not offer again and again because it was done once and for all. And so for us today, that means that if we are living in such a way that we have to offer and we have to work a sacrifice over and over again to earn God's favor, then we don't really understand what it is that David's talking about, and what it is that Jesus has done. Um, and, and obviously, you know, we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. I don't think any of us struggle with, with having to go and, and get a, a fire pit ready and, and slaughter a lamb so that we can atone for our sacrifice. But, but we do it in different ways. You know, we, we have to, you know, we go and hide from God, and we sit and, and beat ourselves on the chest and say, I have screwed up and I don't deserve you. And we, we, we pretend like by doing that, we, we gain favor. 
when all the favor we're ever going to get from Jesus has been given to us freely. And, and that's the gospel. That's, that's what you and I are here for. That's the reason we today exist as a church, as, as believers. It's because of what Jesus has done, not what we must do. And so David is, is giving us a glimpse of this, that when this priest and the order of Melchizedek comes, no longer do we have to fret, do we have to fear, do we have to worry, do we have to work out in some way to earn favor. Rather, we get to work because of what he has done. And we see that, that Jesus is, is different, like Melchizedek was different. You know, Melchizedek was not of the line of Abraham. He was not part of this, this chosen people that, that God had taken out and was taking out through Abraham. He was different. He was a, a, a Jebusite or a, a, of the, the, uh, the city of Jerusalem. He was different, and he was separate. And so we see that Jesus, in that same way, is better and different and separate and unique. Now, verses uh, 5 through 7 kind of return to the eschatological material, the end times material in verse 3. We glimpse the end again. And this time, not only is it about people joining Jesus for this battle, but it's about judgment. And uh, verses 5 through 7, kind of, we're going to go through them very quickly. It says that the Lord is at your right hand. You know, it's, it's almost as if he's now seen Jesus has sat down, he is at his right hand, and now he's getting up for the end. In this revelation-type material where he says, Jesus will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. And he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, and he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So we know that, that Jesus is going to come back. This fulfillment of this we see when we read Revelation, that he's going to come back and he's going to execute judgment. Revelation 19, verse 11, this is kind of the fulfillment of what David sees. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is Jesus that David is is looking forward to and he is seeing. And we see that Jesus here, as in Revelation, is described as executing this judgment on the day of his power that the Lord has ordained and he has set at some point in the future that we don't know. And we know that, that Jesus is going to come back. He is going to conquer. He's going to finish off death and Satan once for all. And things will be made right. And so for us today, the, the point isn't to, to worry about when that's going to happen. You know, that, that's, that's not what we are called to, to. To sit and fret and twiddle our thumbs until that day comes. 
but rather to get up and to work and to yearn for it. You know, to mean to work for that, that day of the Lord, that coming of the Lord means that, that we should have this sense of urgency in everything we do. You know, we don't know the time. You know, even Jesus, it's, it's told, of us, told us that you know, he sits there waiting and not even he knows when the day is going to come that the Father is going to bring him back. And so we should be urgent in everything, whether that's uh, mundane tasks of, of doing work and, you know, just to earn money and to provide for a family, doing it with that urgency that the Christ is coming back and, and I want to stand before him and I want to be able to say, I have been a good and faithful servant in what you've given me and in the things you've entrusted me with. And also that means that, that do we want to have people around us that, that we helped bring along, you know, that, that we taught how to be righteous in Jesus, that we taught where to find grace, that we uh, helped to clothe in that holiness that only Jesus provides. And that, that urgency should cause us to want that and to, to go out and, and be bold in what we say and what we do. So we see that David is, is looking forward. You know, he, he doesn't understand near as much as even we do right now. There's a whole lot more revelation that's going to come that at this point in time where we are at allows us to know more. But we see that David, in this song, this little bitty song, teaches us to yearn and to look forward and to uh, desire Christ's coming again and to have enthusiasm for that. In Acts 2, the first... Uh, sermon that Peter ever preaches there at Pentecost, he tells us that Jesus has been exalted and awaits the day of his return. Uh, He he also quotes this this first uh, two verses of this chapter, and so we, as we read the story to the end, uh, we know how it's going to end, we know how it began, we see where David's at here, kind of in the middle, in this tension, and you see where you and I are at in this tension as well. So we should be spurred on in urgency to live for our king, who is also that better high priest, and in urgency, along with John, at the end of his Revelation account, after all this stuff that he has written and and he has seen about the coming of of the Lord again, where he is going to vanquish every enemy, John says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. So that we should, along with him, say that and and yearn for that. And so as we transition uh, from this into the Lord's Supper, I think what we should remember today is uh, that Jesus has come. He, we are not waiting for a Messiah. We are not waiting for a better high priest. Our better high priest has already come, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And just like Melchizedek brings out bread and wine for Abraham, Jesus also came and he brought bread and wine in the form of his body, and he died in such a way that vanquished sin and death so that you and I don't have to live chained to them. You and I don't have to live as slaves to sin, but rather we get to be slaves of righteousness. And so today, I I just encourage you to to dwell on the fact that you are not uh, a slave to sin any longer, and in that you have become a slave to Jesus and his righteousness and how the the bread and the wine that we have uh, represent that. That you and I are slaves of righteousness. So we'll pray, and then as you feel led, uh, go back and, and take the Lord's Supper. Father, I thank you so much for your word and the way that you have revealed truth to us in it and the way that you allow us to have uh, illuminated minds, Lord, that we are not in the dark. And Lord, we get to have hope in your coming again. 
Lord, I thank you for Jesus and the completed work that he has done and the amazing, awesome power that he has in vanquishing all of his enemies through you. Father, we ask that today we would live as if he's coming again. And Lord, that we would truly understand that. And Spirit, help us where we fail. Spirit, teach us uh, mysteries that we don't yet understand. And Lord, help us to say with John, come Lord Jesus, and to yearn as David yearned for your coming again. And I pray this all in your son's precious name. Amen.